becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you to make real. Passing over the songs. We do this, I guess. All right, let's do it. Well, we never don't do it <laughs> to the shores. To the shores. <laughs> Man, here we that. are. No kidding, we are here. It is spring. It is spring. Spring is sprung. <laughs> Uh, that's how it's gonna go huh i don't know how it's gonna go i've been on in dad mode for like three weeks straight yeah and yeah my mind's scrambled not just dad mode single dad single dad mode yeah that's that's a lot of that's a lot that's a lot on your shoulders to carry yeah worn out (laughs) but now you have you have a couple days to to chill and <clears throat> Regroup. Yes. I cannot get my mic squared away. Sorry. <laughs> Are we recording? Yeah, yeah, we're recording, right? <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we don't. I think it's hard because it's, you know, you have those times in your life where you have to kind of push and go. And, <clears throat> and a lot of times it takes you about two or three days to kind of accept it and then jump into it and then you're kind of going and then at some point you kind of have like this point where you start to kind of wear out you know Mm -hmm. and and then like i think there's also like experience with that too is as you've as you've hit those times where you start to wear out you kind of recognize it but then you kind of regroup and are able to kind of push through and and you know make it to the finish line wherever that is you know yeah Yeah. Anytime I think you're confronted with something really hard that sort of has to function, has Mm -hmm. to get done, you have to compartmentalize and put a lot of things to the side. Like you don't have time to sort of complain or, you know, to feel sad or worn out or emotional. It's like shit's got to get done. People have got to get to where they need to go and got to eat and all of the things that, you know, kids need. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think this is one of the hardest parts about being a part-time single parent is that you can function that way. Actually, I think indefinitely, mm-hmm. but then when the release comes or the, the reprieve from that, all of the things that you pushed to the side come flooding in. Yeah. <clears throat> like I find that when I come off long stints with my kids, I'll take them you know, to school the last day, knowing that their mom is going to pick them up and, I'll just get intensely tired. Hmm. I didn't necessarily sleep any less or, you know, I think it's just my body has been pushing for a long time and then it's like, let go. Yeah. So today was one of those days for me, <laughs> but I think I'm just feeling it now actually. Cause I, I took the kids to school and then I went to work and I had uh, like eight hours of back to back meetings where I had to be really on and paying attention and, contributing and that was really good it was a very productive day i felt good about it <clears throat> and then once we kind of sat down to dinner tonight my brain kind of turned off <laughs> <clears throat> i mean how, how do you think you learned that like that part of just being able to uh, either just the idea of gutting through it or 
to be able to kind of turn some of that off in order to get through something. Well, I think when the consequences are dire enough, um, you just do it. Mm. I mean, I think for me, and part of this is a fault or has at least become a fault is that when I first got divorced, <clears throat> it was a very contentious divorce and the, the likelihood that that was going to get relitigated and specifically my ability to see my kids be relitigated. Um, I had just decided really early on, like, I'm not going to fuck anything up. Like nobody's ever going to be late to school. Nobody's ever, I'm never going to be late picking them up. You know, I'm really strict on bedtimes. I'm like, make sure I do everything right. I'm not going to like give any indication to anybody that I'm not a good father Hmm. that could be used against me to try to take my kids from me. And so when the consequences were really high, it was like, no, I don't have time to like be emotional about this. Hmm. Have you ever had time to kind of be emotional about it or kind of more so now? I mean, yeah, now that my kids are older and, um, you know, I think the likelihood that that does get relitigated or that that change is, is very low now. Mm-hmm. Um, partly cause they're older and partly it's just been a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I can actually, I can, I can be more myself when my kids are here and when they're gone, mm-hmm. like, the, like I'm more the same. <laughs> yeah. And you know, another part of it is that my kids actually kind of notice and care mm-hmm. too. They're old enough to do that. Yeah. And, they'll ask me and sort of invite me to, you know, relax (laughs) or break down, you know, if I need to and support me in that. seems so hard to, to turn it off though. Like the, yeah, the go mode. Right. Cause it's definitely like that. I mean, there's similar things I think of parenting and, and business and, you know, all the different responsibilities that, you know, we all have something that we're having to take care of. <clears throat> you know that if you, if you don't take care of it, that it's going to fall apart. Right. You know, I was thinking when I asked you that question, like, when did you first learn it? Um, like I can think of things like in basketball, you know, like I learned, it's like, it doesn't matter if you're 30 points behind, you still got, two quarters left. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can either sit here and whine about it mm. or you can get out there and play your hardest. Right. You're still going to lose. Right. But you're not, you're going to, you're going to lose good well. Yeah. Lose well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's something about that, that this idea of just showing up, even if you're going to lose, just show up. Right. You know, or like even in the ideas of, you know, you've, you've, done something at work and you know, you know, people are not mad or kind of mad at you. It's like, Mm. okay, well I'm just going to show up and let people be mad at me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, and you know, kind of go from there, you know, well apologize if you need to, but like, you know, sometimes when it's not your, your fault or it's just the way things are, you know, it's like, you kind of have to just kind of gut it up and just show up, you know? Um, I definitely feel that more on vacations. Like I just like the first day or two, it takes me to unwind. Right. Like I, 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 
that's why I hate like weekend vacations. Like Allison would love to do more of those type of things, but it's like by the time you don't I'm, feel like you ever get to the vacation part. Uh, uh-uh. yeah. it's like, oh, it has to be at least a week because it takes me a day or two to just get there to get out of go mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, with parenting, it's like people are expecting things from you all the time. Right. You're the one who has the answer. It is or, like a physiological state that mm-hmm. you enter almost like fight or flight. Like when mm. people are expecting things from you or needing things from you, it's hard. It's, it takes a while to let go of that state of being. Yeah. Even if you know that you're, you know, sort of off responsibility. Mm-hmm. And on another side of that too, it's also hard to teach that it's like, people have to actually experience it in order to understand it and to learn it. Hmm. So like, you know, whether you're talking about like a manager or, you know, a barista or, um, you know, whatever it might be, it's, you know, so, cause I've managed and I've been a barista and it's, you know, that, you know, you, you have a line of 15 people and you're wanting to get through the line, but there's always 15 people for two hours and you just, you just, at some point you just have to be able to sit back and go, okay, here we go. This is the pace we're moving this at. The pace we're moving Settle at. in. It's not about the line right. going away. It's right. about just getting going and getting done. And you know, you can't teach that to somebody. They have to experience it and mm-hmm. to somehow find their groove within that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to remind people like, Hey, everyone calm down. Let's find your groove. Let's just go. You know? Yeah. Don't think about the line going away. Cause it's <laughs> not, <laughs> Do you think there's some corollary there to the idea of flow state? Mm, very true. Yeah, definitely. The skill and the challenge. It's it's a lot of times when that first happens, it's a it's a high challenge but a low skill. And then as you learn the skill to be able to manage drinks or, you know, you have an Americano and a latte and a macchiato. Well, it's like, okay, well you can pour you can get the Americano going and the latte going. And then come at the end, do the macchiato or something like that. And like, you know, the, mm. you know, certain ways to get the drinks out faster and not sacrifice quality, you know, mm. but it's just a matter of organizing your time. And it seems like that organizing your time starts to become something of a dance. Mm-hmm. And then when it all falls apart, like you have like 10 or 15 tickets and then you spill milk, you hit the <laughs> pitcher on accident and it's like, it's this horrible feeling. And a lot of times people just like crumble at that point. Mm. And, but you have to learn that, okay, yeah, clean up the milk. Yes. More tickets are coming out, but I just have to start over Mm -hmm. and it's a slow, you kind of like to start over, you have to go a little bit slower and then you slowly pick up the momentum again. Yeah. And it's, it's, but it's just really hard to like be able to get through those types of moments, you know, that. You could just throw up your hands and be like, fuck this. I'm out of here. It's interesting to me that you just gave the example of breathing, Mm -hmm. like take a deep breath, Mm. collect yourself, figure out how to re, you know, gather up what just fell apart Mm -hmm. and get back to that flow state. Mm -hmm. I wonder what it is about breathing because Mm. it's common advice. Yeah. You know, just, just breathe. Like someone's nervous about something, just Mm -hmm. breathe. It's going to be okay. Um, today and you and I have been into the Wim Hof stuff for a while now Mm -hmm. today, actually midway through my work day, I had like a 30 minute break and I kind of felt like I was going to break. Like I wasn't going to make it through the rest of the day. And I just went and sat in my car and did breathe. I just breathed Mm -hmm. for 15 minutes and it allowed me to get through the rest of the day, transformed me wonder why, why that is. 
Well, it's definitely, I mean, there's an aspect of it. It's just physiological of like getting oxygen, you mm-hmm. know, into your body. Cause there's that whole thing. Uh, uh, I just on Instagram. There was this one guy who just said like, if you're ever in a situation, take deep, three deep breaths, but not like deep breaths, like, but like, So you're breathing twice in through your nose. You're kind of like more forcefully in and then yeah. out. And it's like, it kind of like, it kind of like releases a lot of, I mean, probably like endorphins and all that kind of jazz. And I mean, you and I've been doing the breathing thing. So I don't even really recognize it anymore as a lot of times, like when I'm walking to work from my house, like I'm doing breathing exercises and then I'm like, I kind of look around and see if anybody's like watching me. <laughs> Noticing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's feel, it feels like it's really obvious when you're doing it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't think that it is though. Um, maybe not. I, I, did, I mean, I, if you're doing the Wim Hof stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did have a guy that, that does practice the Wim Hof stuff and uh, I just met him for the first time and uh, I was talking with him and I noticed in the middle of when I was talking with him that he was breathing, like exercise breathing, you know, like oh, wow. more like... Huh. That's kind of weird. Well, I, I wasn't sure if like, I know this sounds ridiculous, but maybe not. Well, it's like, I own the coffee shop and this guy is like, Oh, you own the coffee shop. You know, it's like, I don't know if he was like intimidated by mm, He was trying to breathe his, to, <laughs> to stay calm. To stay and, calm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm kind of, I, you know, who knows, but like, but it's interesting. Like I do, I, I noticed that, you know, it's like, but it's just such, I mean, I've been in meetings where it's like, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. I'm not sure exactly what, you know, I have to, I, I start kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I kind of get, get and it helps me better to focus and then not to react to things too. Right. Cause like whenever someone's telling you something about how something's wrong and all the different ways that it's wrong and you're trying to hear them out without saying no, <laughs> <laughs> or that's why, or you know, yeah. you know, maybe give an excuse or whatever, you know, right. Ugh. Yeah, but definitely breathing is such a, it's also just a pause. It's like a, oh, let me break out of this. I kind of got stuck in a rut, you know? Uh, I think one thing I'd notice whenever I'm doing the cold shower in the morning, you know, it's, it's, I sometimes find that my mind was just, I was kind of in a rut of a thought Mm. and it just, I'm just like, and then, and then I, when I turn the shower cold, I'm like, ooh kind of like resets you resets me. And I'm kind of like, Oh man, I really, I was really stuck in that way of thinking or that emotion or feeling. Yeah. And it wasn't productive. Hmm. So I've, I've started doing more, uh, more, some different meditating things that I've been trying Tuesdays and Thursdays are our meditative yoga workout. And then Monday, Wednesday, Friday are my more intense workout (laughs) (laughs) and really trying to like do that you know, just kind of observing your thoughts or what goes through your head and not judging them and just allowing them to kind of flow through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been really, really nice. And part of the thought in that when I'm, when I'm doing that is, is I'm kind of like, what's underneath all that, you know, like what is in that sort of subconscious or unconscious place that's sort of bubbling out, but I'm dealing with it in maybe some surface level spaces, you yeah. know? And it's just, it's just wild because sometimes a thought will capture me and then I'll start reeling on it, you know, and then, oh, whoa, hold on, you know. And it's interesting because it's like I give myself a, a five-minute place where I 
will kind of do that. And then, and then another five minute space where I kind of just try to like allow things to be and not, it's like, I kind of observe what's going on then kind of like let nothing get into that observation, you know? And so it's like, when I give myself five minutes, it's different because that's like, no, no, I can do anything for five minutes, <laughs> you know? Um, you like Axelrod and billions, like go into a soundproof room and set a five minute timer and meditate. No, it's just in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd love that. A friend of mine has a, uh, he's got this office that's like, you know, it's actually a house, but he's got one of the rooms in the house is a meditation room. And, uh, I was like, so jealous. Like, <laughs> I was like that is amazing <laughs> <laughs> to have a room dedicated to that. Uh, yeah. But I didn't think about it. It's like, if I had an office, that'd be the, I would love to have like a house, like a four bedroom house and then just divide the rooms up into different zones, you know, mm. <laughs> makes me think that <clears throat> like how you just described meditation, mm -hmm. this idea that it's not exactly easy to know what you think. Mm -mm. And, and part of that <clears throat> is that, what you think about things is like caught up in a web of contradictions and paradoxes. And if you're honest about what you think, it would be troublesome to you mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah. And so you don't allow yourself to think it. Mm -hmm. And then, if, but if you try, you sort of surprise yourself. You're like, Oh wow. I really think that that was true. Yeah. And it's not like you necessarily something changed in you mm -hmm. it's that you allowed yourself to say what you thought you could do that through meditation you can just do it through conversation too journaling yeah in journaling yeah mm -hmm. which is a also a reminder to me of why it's so important not to lie mm. in your life oh yeah <laughs> I think that's the great thing about taking that time and space to be able to journal or meditate or pray or, or whatever it might be is because you do confront the stuff that's kind of underneath, you know, and, and even the ugly things, you know, about yourself, you know, that's, you know, maybe the areas that there, maybe you stepped over the line of, you know, maybe being prideful or, or, you know, kind of a dick or something like that, you know, cause it's, it's hard. Cause like most time people aren't dicks outright, you know, it's just sort of like, maybe you didn't handle it as well as you should have. And, but you might've had good intentions, but you just didn't handle it well, hmm. but it's be able to maybe even, even see like, okay, this is what I was trying to get to. And this is how I handled it. And this is what I said. And you can kind of look at it through like, wow, I didn't do that very well. And, and then maybe even recognizing maybe some of the motivations behind, you know, why you reacted that way. Maybe I was being defensive. Mm, like, right. I didn't like being, I didn't like somebody questioning the quality of uh, my coffee shop or something like that. You know, it's like, that was, I felt like they were attacking me or something like that when it was like, 
it was feedback, but maybe they weren't giving the feedback in a way that you wanted to hear it. Like, hey, you know, I just want to give this feedback to you that, you know, most time I'm here, it's, it's really good, but I had this one experience. Like, they're like, every time I come in here, it's like this. It's like, well, I know not every time you come in here, it's like that, you know? Right. <laughs> it's like, so you can kind of like, maybe interpret it a little bit more as someone's talking to you of like when they're throwing out every's and always it's like you start responding to that rather than the thing that they're saying. Yeah. Where it's like, actually what you're saying is the last time you came in here, this happened and it was really frustrating and, and it's clouded your experiences of all the other times it may have gone well or, or really well, you know, hmm. I mean, you do that with kids too, or, you know, a spouse or whatever, you know, it's like, but I think it's hard when emotions and frustrations kind of come up and it's like, although for me, it's always keywords are always and ever, never and all that kind of stuff. It's always, sometimes that throws red flags in the air. Like, okay, that's not the case, but <laughs> what they're saying is true, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's, there's an element of that that is like in this instance, this happened or something like that, you know, right. or maybe there's been enough of those instances that, um, it's kind of built up to seem and feel like it's always, you know, like dad, you always, no, I don't always do. That. <laughs> I mean, what do you think is the proper way to respond to that? When somebody says, you know, <clears throat> you always do that. But it's clearly not true, mm-hmm. but it, there is some validity to the statement. Yeah. And if you focus on the part that's not true, you don't allow space for the part that is true. Mm-hmm. But if you only focus on the part that is true, well, do you just let slide the hyperbole? It's a really good question. That's why you breathe. You breathe. <laughs> <clears throat> I think those are the hard things to really navigate. And I think that's where wisdom comes in is in some instances where it's like <clears throat> you need to you need to kind of allow some of those things to pass over the always and nevers and really get to the heart of it like what you're really telling me is you're hurt or you're disappointed yeah and i'm sorry about that and maybe in other instances it's like hey you know that's not how it always is you know, yeah tell me to help me better understand like what best specific where is this coming from you know and it might be more of a specific thing like, Oh, well dad, when you did this or, you know, boss, when you did this, that made me feel this way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's like, there's a maturity in that, in that that's really, I think it's really difficult to. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like, how do you, <clears throat> cause I find myself doing it too. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm, I never do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> right. Right. <clears throat> like I can think about a scenario recently with my son mm-hmm. where I wanted to say, say, uh, maybe I even did say, you know, you never get up on time. Mm. Oh yeah. Which isn't true. Once he did. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, what's a better way to phrase that? Cause you're trying to make the point that there's a, there's a predictable pattern here. I mean, that's what mm-hmm. somebody's saying when they say, you know, you always respond that way or you always do that or you never do this. Mm-hmm. You're not making an absolute claim. You're, you're pointing out a pattern, which is predictable. 
mm. that, that you can rely on enough that to, enough to say always. Yeah. Cause in, in some sense there isn't such a thing as always, there's always, well, except, except <laughs> that there's always edge cases. <laughs> uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> I don't know. <clears throat> so would it be any better to say, I've noticed that there's a predictable pattern <laughs> and then you just sound like Spock. Yeah, exactly. Frequently I've noticed. Yeah. That <laughs> well, that's a hard thing too. Um, it depends on who you are. I, I don't feel like I have a lot of, I don't feel like I have a lot of room to be unpredictable and emotional, you know, like in your life, in my life. Yeah. yeah. Like I feel like, I don't mind if other people are, you know, that's something that, and it's weird because like they blow up and you know, it's like, or say things are off the wall and then, then they come back and they're like, Oh, okay. But, and I'm always like, no, I get it. Sometimes we go through this, you know, it's like, but I don't think that's something that I don't feel like I have space to be able to do that. That's like, uh, like if you were to, if I were to blow up at a, uh, an employee or something like that, like, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> like that has like ramifications that are <clears throat> a lot greater than if somebody like an employee blew up or a manager, <clears throat> like they would have, hmm. there's like, there's like, oh, I guess it's also like, maybe I provide space for that. Like, no, I get it. Sometimes that's the way just, let's not do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. But I think maybe we do, we expect more from our leaders, you know, uh, you know, I expect more from Joe Biden, from Trump or hmm. whoever is the president to act a certain way and to be consistent. And when they're not, I think it's really hard for us to allow, to allow, allow our leaders to not be consistent. Yeah. Well, the truth is no one is No. Uh-uh. not ultimately. Mm-mm. But it is more it is more upsetting somehow when when a leader is not consistent, even when, you know, maybe it shouldn't be like even in my well, this morning mm-hmm. took my kids to school last day of a three week stint. And, um, and I was really struggling to get myself sort of into into work mode to go in and be turned on and um, <clears throat> thought about calling in and canceling a couple morning meetings because I was just struggling. Mm-hmm. And I was like, actually, I went and took a cold shower. <laughs> Got out of my cold shower. I was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> and uh, on my way to work, my boss messaged me and a couple of other people and said, hey, I'm not going to make this first meeting this morning. Mm. We'll catch up later. And I, the, my first response was I was frustrated mm. because... I didn't want to go to the meeting anyway, <laughs> you know, but I, yeah. I tried really hard to put in a lot of effort to make sure that I was there. And then, but I, I was also relieved. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, great. I don't have to rush. Mm-hmm. I'm actually just going to like sit in my car and sip my coffee for a few minutes and try to reset and like take the time to move into this, you know, work day. Yeah. So it was good, but there was some frustration. Whereas I think if I had called in and canceled the meeting, I don't, you know, there would have been less frustration on the other end of that. Mm-hmm but we do expect more from people who are leading mm-hmm. expect more consistency, or maybe it's that a lack of consistency consistency is felt more deeply. Yeah. 
Well, it's definitely, I mean, even people like you respect, you know, as far as, you know, if someone came up to me that was just some Joe Schmo off the street or something like that and said, like, you know what, your coffee shop sucks. I'm like, okay, well, it's not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but if like a peer of mine came up to me, I was like, hey, man. Hmm. You, know, you take it differently. Yeah, your, your coffee's really not good. You would take that seriously. Yeah, I would take that a lot more right. seriously because they have a lot more authority and um, expertise, too, to make that value judgment with a lot more precision than somebody than most people just off the street or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we do, t- we, I mean, again, we, you know, I think you can see this like with Fauci and, you know, it's like at first uh, there's a sort of like, you know, he's the authority. It's like, what does this all mean? Help us, help us, help us make sense of this. And, and then sometimes when people go through uh, some scenarios and they realize like, Oh, well maybe you weren't as honest or truthful with me as, as you could have been. Mm-hmm. You do lose like sort of respect and trust in those leaders, you know? Um, so I think it's hard because like, again, I think there's a lot of things I can understand in some respect of sort of like, well, Hey, we're going to tell everybody this just so that everyone feels caught. Com- comfortable and confident, you know, about moving forward and mm-hmm. whatever it might be, you right. know? Um, but then when new information comes in and it's like, actually that that's not something that's going to help us, you know, it's hard to trust somebody into that next, you know, when they do tell you something that is valuable or you need to pay attention to mm-hmm. like your eighth booster shot. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what are we doing? <laughs> That's a conspiracy theory. We're only on the fourth. Oh, fourth. Sorry. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't sure where we were. Nobody's that. ever said anything about eight. <laughs> you must be watching Fox News. And oh, totally. You're probably <laughs> listening to Alex Jones on the side. Totally. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like when you were, again, there's a, there's a window, I think, that leaders have. And, you know, two weeks stuff spread. You know, oh, when the vaccines come out, oh, and it's like, at some point we kind of need somebody to stand up and say, hey, (laughs) here's the situation, you know, vaccines have this effectiveness are good for these people, you know, and, and, you know, natural immunity has this aspect of it. I don't want to get into COVID stuff. Yeah. Um, Another example. Find a a different example. Different example. Um. No, no, I got too far down that road. <laughs> you can't back out. No, I can't back out. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I want to speak more broadly or generally. It's 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 like we just we need we need more honest. Mm-hmm. We don't need babysitters, you know. I think in times of crisis, we need leaders to step up and take leadership, and to maybe make decisions that are harder. But at some point, those leaders also need to step back and be able to say, okay, hey, we're out of the crisis or at least crisis red line. And we're now in orange crisis. Okay. There's some responsibility you need to take in this. Hmm. So here's here's what I'm suggesting that you take responsibility for, you know, but I think there's the part that can, that kind of is more of a dictatorial ship type thing is like, I'm going to take care of you. Listen to me. And if you do what I say, you will be okay. Like, I feel like that is for a period of time or 
like that type of leadership is very small. I mean, like in Rome, is was it the Pax Amarna where they give the emperor like unlimited power, but the emperor's at some point supposed to give it back to the the, the republic, you know, to the city, and lot well, most times that doesn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, but I, I do understand like why there are certain times when you need that type of leadership. But in order to have that kind of leadership, I think George Washington did that really well. It's like he had a lot of sway and um, influence on what happened. He could have been king if he would have pushed. Oh, man. I heard a great story about George Washington. Oh, really? Well, sad. <laughs> Maybe not a great story, but very interesting to think, to think about. Apparently, George Washington, uh, do you know how he died? Mm. He was bled to death. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So apparently, I didn't know this either, George Washington was like the richest dude mm-hmm. in, I guess, in America. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he got a cold, started running a fever. And so he hired the best medical experts and doctors that money could buy. Mm-hmm. And what did they do? They bled him because that's what expert medicine said was the best thing to do to cure a fever mm. was literally to cut them open. They thought we need to let blood out. And apparently within, I don't know what it was like 12 or 24 hours from get, get, getting a fever, he's dead. Jeez. That's what the expert said to do. Mm-hmm. But wait, we know better now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's just a, it's just a reminder that, we need humility. Mm. I mean, even, even from our experts and even from our, especially from our experts and especially from our leaders. Mm. Yeah. It's, and that's what, I, I mean, that's why I kind of grew up understanding about science is, is it's like, okay, here's what we know and here's what we think we know. And here's kind of where that stops, you know, and, and we're still, and then here's all the ways that this could be proven wrong. Mm-hmm. Like that was always kind of my understanding. And it's like where now science has sort of become this sort of dogmatic truth. And I think that's really hard. And I think it makes it even hard for our leaders. It's sort of like we want people to have the scientific answer that is a hundred percent sound. And that's just not how science works. It's like, there are so many variables. It's like the climate change stuff. You know, it's like how many variables are included in climate change? It's not just CO2, you know, and, and, you know, or even like with, uh, you know, gas prices, it's Russia's fault. It's like, it's not just Russia's fault. Like there's, there's so many things going on right now that we look for these simple answers and it's so much more complex than that. Hmm. How, so how do you how do you simplify it to help people understand that you know I don't study these things help me understand this, but then also leave open that window of complexity. Yeah, that astounds me a bit. That especially with the climate stuff that, um, and and the COVID stuff. I mean, I think it's a general feature of our society right now is that we have no problem just accepting predictions and answers as if it's a simple calculation Mm -hmm. that not only is there not massive complexity that we know about, Mm -hmm. but a massive amount of complexity that we don't know about. Like I was thinking about the climate change thing 
um, the other day because it was supposed to rain here. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it was the other day it was supposed to hail. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought somebody was trying to like make plans with me. You know, they were trying to plan around the, you know, the weather app said it was going to rain. And I just thought every time it says it's going to rain, it doesn't rain. <laughs> It'll rain tomorrow. Every time? But it, yeah, right. <laughs> it's a predictable pattern, is what I meant to say. I've noticed a predictable pattern, and, and that predictable pattern is that meteorologists can't predict the weather. Mm-hmm. And yet, some group of scientists comes to us and says, here's the way the world's going to be in the year 2100. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can't tell me if it's going to rain today... yeah then how are you going to tell me what it's going to be like in 80 years? It seems so obviously uh, foolish. And that's not to say that they shouldn't predict what's going to be like in 2100. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's value in that. But for all of us to, to demand that, that, you know, we all must submit to this being the way that it is and live our lives around that Mm -hmm. and to not allow any, discussion into the complexities of that. And there's this push to say, well, if you ask any questions about the complexities of it, of that forecast, then you must be a climate denier, which oh, is, yeah, a, yeah. I think a hilarious title, <laughs> like <laughs> a climate denier denying that there is a climate. What is it you saying? <laughs> well, it's also like, I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, we've heard the anti-vax stuff. It's like, yeah. you know, if you question, vaccines it's you're an anti-vaxxer it's all but those are the things are are those types of it's like middle school tactics you know oh you're stupid (laughs) (laughs) you know it's like calling somebody names so that just so you don't have to like engage in the conversation Mm -hmm. of what those things mean you know or the or the complexities of it it's 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 just easier that way to lump people into a certain category. I mean, there are anti-vaxxers, people that are against vaccines by in principle and, and in every way. Mm-hmm. You know, that is an anti-vaxxer. Um, and they would call themselves an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, they'd say, I'm anti-vax. <laughs> I'm anti-vax. You know, uh, so it was a category that existed before COVID. Yeah. And then it got co-opted. Mm-hmm. The label got co-opted. Mm-hmm. You know, even to like, you know, I think even like us just talking about the climate stuff without us saying all the uh, predisposed things you say about if you're a climate, I don't know what the other side is, climate denier or is it? Activist. Activist. World ender. (laughs) (laughs) Greta Thunberg. Yeah. It's like, it's like you, it's like you have to fit neatly into these. Or we even had a conversation earlier. It was like, you know. Uh, I think it was last week, you know, if you say these certain things, you might be called MAGA. You know, it's mm. like, it's like, how does that like, <clears throat> like, why do we have to like dump people into certain categories? You know, whether like, you know, some people would actually claim that. Yes, I am MAGA. You know, it's really strange. This is a strange effect because we live in a, in a society that simultaneously is, is obsessed with category destruction mm-hmm. and yet fetishizes categorization. Oh, interesting. At a different level. Yeah. So we want to destroy categories such as, well, the category of women, mm. for example, the category of, of sex, um, 
all categories of identity mm-hmm. need to be busted up and broken down and you know you need to be you should be it's very good to be non-binary or queer or questioning um I mean, this is all category escape and mm-hmm. i i partly get that probably understand that because there's something <clears throat> you know categories become tyrannical you know in a way mm-hmm. I, and i understand the the desire to buck the categories but then on the other hand you're you're explaining this sort of like everything seems binary you're either a climate denier or a climate activist climate so activist yeah. mm-hmm. you're either maga or you're on the good side <laughs> totally you're not, there's nothing in between for yeah. sure. Yeah. So it's like a hyper fetishization, fetishization mm-hmm. of larger categories, largely organized around the polarity of morality. Hmm. Yeah. That is funny. It's like, you see this too with, uh, I see, you know, just being more familiar with the Christian church, I see a lot of people leave Christianity or try to do like, a, you know, a different type of uh, church or whatever. And they kind of end up just doing the exact same thing right. that they were came out of. Right. Uh, some friends of ours. Uh, no, but it's different. It's different. Yeah. Because they're doing it. Well, I, I just, some of our friends, uh, they're just, they're no longer Mormons. And they were saying, it's just nice to talk to people that are, no are not former Mormons because like you, you all, you fall into the same trap of like identifying the same things as other people and why you're not that thing anymore, you know, rather than being something else. It's like, I'm no longer, I no longer fit into this category, but I still define myself as someone who doesn't fit into the category rather than being (laughs) something else. Well, that's kind of what's funny is, Mm -hmm identifying as being outside of a category is to, is to be in a new category. Mm-hmm. Like you really can't escape categorization. No. Uh-uh. I mean, all of consciousness is categorization. Yeah. Punk rock. At least in one way. You're a part of a group. Punk yeah. Rock. You're anti-establishment. All of us are anti-establishment. <laughs> we're an establishment against the establishment. We're, we're, we're established against the establishment. <laughs> uh, you know, and then before long, you're the establishment. I think that's something that there's something healthy about that too. Is like, cause I mean, you know, something that you and I have kind of been toying around with, uh, there's without getting too deep into the woods on this one, but uh, like a fourth turning kind of thing where, you know, you build up these institutions and at some point those institutions need to be challenged and sort of, uh, not decomposed, but decompressed was that deconstructed mm. because it's like, there's some things when you build an institution there's some things that are not healthy or good. And at, and at different times you need to kind of tear down those institutions and deconstruct them in order mm-hmm. to build something stronger and better. And sometimes we confuse that with, we need to destroy the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, no, you know, I always think of the French revolution. It's like down with the government. It's like, Oh no, we're the government. Well, down with the government. It's like, it's <laughs> Shoot, like, no, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore, exactly. But it's like at some point you have to start having some sort of systems and order that you you build in order to have societies and community and relationships. You can't have any of those things without some sort of structure to it. You right. Know? 
and it's just impossible. But I think it's just it's hard to know. I think that again, there's there's this is where wisdom comes in is knowing when and how to deconstruct things. And it's, again, I'm making it sound way too pretty because it's it's a little bit messier because a lot of times we don't want to change. We don't want to, um, even if something's bad for us, it, it's, it's almost, it, sometimes we feel safer because we know what to expect. You know, I mean, you hear this a lot of in abusive relationships, you know, that, mm. you know, it's like people won't leave because it's familiar and they know what to expect and it's safe mm. in that. Yeah. I mean, part of safety is predictability. Re- predictability. Mm. Yeah even if that predictability is harmful Mm -hmm. that can feel safe compared with the unknown. Yeah. Again, it comes down to that. Maybe what we're talking about at the beginning is like, it takes time two or three days sometimes to shift into something new. You know, first you're like, no, I don't want change. And then you start to kind of like see that, Oh, actually this is good. And, and you start to kind of release yourself to that change, but we don't, we don't, it seems like we just don't do that very willingly. Like it ha- we have to have some sort of crisis in order to, to really help us change. Huh. Now that, that kind of brings up a whole nother element too. And how manipulative that can also be like, mm-hmm like in crisis and how people can manipulate those things in order. Yeah. To. You can create crisis in order to manipulate, mm-hmm. which is something I think people do in abusive relationships. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say our government too, but <laughs> <laughs> well, it's abusive relationship, but that's not an abusive relationship. That's just you being a conspiracy. Theorist. <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, the news does that to us. I mean, for viewership, it's like, totally. they, it's, it's yeah. an abusive relationship. It's like, Here's a crisis. Here's a crisis. Here's a crisis. And you need to care about this. If you don't care about this, you're a bad person. <laughs> yeah. Cause if you don't care about this, we're out of a job. Mm-hmm. So we have, in order to sell the crisis, we also have to sell the morality around the crisis, mm-hmm. which means you're a bad person if you don't care. Yeah. About, about our trumped up thing in the first place. Yeah. But it, it, but again, I don't know how else it could be. It's, 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 it's something who wants to hear like, maybe I do. I don't know. <laughs> like everything's good in the world or not everything. Which, I don't go that far. That's, that's a little bit. Wow. It's really cool. Like, have you seen what El Salvador is doing with their economy? Like that's a really beautiful thing. Right. I don't think you would hear that. It's more of like, you know the irresponsibility of what El Salvador is doing with Bitcoin and trying to be more sovereign and not have to depend on the dollar or, uh, other people's IMF or outside influences. Like, like how can we as a, as a, as an economy, El Salvador be self-sufficient and have impact in the world and not have to be dependent on other people? Um, but maybe be more on equal standing or equal footing. You know, I think that's something that, every nation is looking for. And sometimes we need other, other people to help us and to give us that sort of base to sort of, uh, kind of grow from our sure footing, you know? And I think the U S has kind of done that over the last, you know, since maybe 1944 and 
that is probably something that is maybe going away. And that's something that we'll probably talk about in our next week's podcast. <laughs> the end. The, end. <laughs> the United States. <laughs> no, just the, I mean, like what is our influence and in, like, hmm. and not that the U.S.'s influence has to end, but it might, it might need to shift and morph into a leader that's moving into something else. Yeah. Maybe we've been holding on to older systems that are no longer helpful or profitable or, um, serving other people mm-hmm. and serving other nations. I think, I think the U S has a lot left in it to, to lead in, but I think we're also clinging on to some old ways that are keeping us from moving into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it has to do with like moving from the industrial age to the digital age. And there's a lot of things that I think this, this new, this new world we're moving into, which is a lot more of a digital world. Um, the U S has a lot of leadership to, to provide, and I don't know. I mean, I wonder if the U.S., at least as as an institution, mm-hmm. can provide that, or maybe circling back to the idea of like it's not easy to know what you think, which is why it's important not to lie in your life because if you lie, mm. you make it that much harder to know what you think. Because you have to, your thoughts are already in this web of a matrix of knowing and unknowing and second guessing and feeling ashamed and fear and all of this, all of what it is to be human. Your your thoughts are dispersed among all of these things inside of you. Mm -hmm. But if you start lying... Now you've got to figure out, now, now you don't just have the, um, the difficult task of figuring out what's true in you. Mm. You also then have to check that against a complex set of structures that you have to maintain in order to make sure that the part of your life that's dependent on the lie doesn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, well, I think we've already made the case that we need leaders to be honest. And I wonder if there's already too many lies at the institutional level in the U.S. to really sort that out, to be, to lead in these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I definitely am a, I'm a lot more skeptical of our leadership and on a national level. Uh, I'm, but I'm also a little bit more bullish <laughs> on Texas. You know, I think I think there's something about that sort of that balance between sort of freedom and protection mm-hmm. that is that's a, that's here. That's why so many people are moving here. It's like, hey, we're going to stay out of your business. However, we're going to provide some infrastructure, right? to kind of like protect that. And again, each system has its, has its, you know, no system's perfect. So that's something I want to be very careful about. But I think there's a reason why so many people are moving to Texas right now is, is there's that sort of, Hey, we're not going to tell you what to do, but also don't step out of line, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and everyone has a different 
I think a different view of what that means to step out of line. And that's something that's always a dialogue that we're trying to, um, sort of navigate. But at the same time, I think we value freedom in Texas specifically, you know, um, very highly, Hmm. like kind of just kind of stay out of my, stay out of my life, (laughs) you know? So we kind of have to have, um, but we do know that we do need a certain amount of structure to make this thing work. Um, so, I mean, I, just all the tech companies moving here. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of tech companies, real estate's going off the, <laughs> off the chain. It's mm-hmm. like, I feel like everybody is becoming a real estate agent. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so true. Yeah. It's like, when does that, when does that stop <laughs> or, or opening up? Uh, maybe it doesn't. Everybody's an Airbnb or now yeah. <laughs> my neighbor. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, no, I mean, maybe not. I mean, especially if here in Austin, it's like, there's so many events coming here and we already have over the last five years, like F1, F1 is even sooner than that, maybe seven years ago. Uh, there's so many NASCAR's not here, motor GP, uh, they're going to build a theme park out at F1 Stadium. Really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the growth here is just insane. But at the same time, you know that at some point it's going to... There's, I feel like there's going to be some sort of capture that happens here. Because, like, again, like anytime you have a Wild West of some sort sort of infrastructure comes and follows and sort of stifles that. And some of it for the good, you know, it kind of, cause like in the wild West you have <laughs> shootings in the street, you know, <laughs> but so there's like a little bit of like uh, civility or to that is helpful, but we always seem to then overreact and then stifle that, that very creativity and the reason why people moved here. Well, I think there's an, I think it's natural to stifle it. Mm. You see that, um, I think, in the way that cities grow. And we're playing it out in Austin right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the reason we're seeing so much growth in Austin is because you had a bunch of artists, Mm. a bunch of kind of hippie artists that moved here in the 70s. Yeah. And what did they do? Like, they created really cool spots, little restaurants and venues and coffee shops, and they would all go hang out there. And it was an interesting place to be because you've got creative intellectual people congregating. Mm -hmm. And so people are like magnetized to that. Yeah. And, but the thing is the more people are magnetized to that and come in, well, now there's more people around and the more people you have around, the more infrastructure you have to build, the more structure you have to put in place to make society operate. Mm. And the more structure you put in place, the more that creative spirit is boxed. Mm. And so, you know, you saw it happen with the development of the East side here in, in Austin, like in 2010, 2011 East sixth had just started becoming a thing. And Shangri-La was the bar we always wanted to go to Mm -hmm. because it was like far East sixth. Mm -hmm. It's only like three blocks, (laughs) but you know, it's like, you didn't have to be around all the people who just moved to town. It was like a little oasis of like the real Austinites. No, uh-huh. you know, yeah, yeah. so you go there, but then it becomes super cool because all the cool people are there. Mm-hmm. And then 
all the people start going over there and somebody's like, well, I'm going to build a bar next door. And then all of a sudden it starts looking like the, all of the rest. Mm-hmm. And so the creative people are like, well, let's go further. You know, so it went further and further all the way out to Pleasant Valley. Mm-hmm. And now it's gone beyond that. Yeah. So it's a constant, it's a constant assimilation of what is good, but then what is good naturally wants to go create out more. Mm-hmm. So I don't even think it's, you could talk about it as a stifling of creativity. I just think it's a, it's an escape of creativity because creativity is always escaping. It's almost necessary, you know, because, because I I think creative people in general, and I think entrepreneurs fit in this thing too, is like, once it becomes something, most creative people and entrepreneurs want to move on to something else. Right. They don't want the thing. Yeah. They want. What's, the next thing. What's the next? Yeah. What's the, the undefined next? thing? Exactly. I want to be in the space of undefined. That's the creative space. Yeah. So you'll always move outside of it. Mm-hmm. So cities will always regenerate. Mm-hmm. Well, they'll, they'll always grow in response to that creative seed mm-hmm. and then become stifling, or at least that's one way to describe it. Or it's a tour. And then the tourist to, part of it too, you know? Yeah. You have the tourist trap and then everyone else wants to come and experience what it, what it was, mm-hmm. but it's not, but it resembles that. Yeah. Well, and eventually, I mean, the interesting thing with a city like Austin is that we, there's no boundary to how far we can expand. Mm, you know, you have a city like New York, for example, there's pretty real boundaries. And mm. I see a city of New York in a state of constant regeneration. Mm. So you, I think you would, this is a theory. Mm-hmm. I've never lived there, but yeah the regeneration that happens and the creative escape tends to just move around town Hmm. as, you know, as cycles go through. And, um, whereas in Austin, we can just keep moving further and further out and there's no end to Texas, you know, so (laughs) lots of room. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, again, then like even places like Bastrop start having, you know, totally. These, these cool spots are Bastrop, Lockhart, or, Dripping Springs, Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like all these things are starting to become like yeah. property values are going up like crazy. Mm-hmm. This is the creative escape. Yeah. You go out to, uh, uh, old fiscal road or whatever it's called. Uh, where, uh, Oh shoot. Now I just lost it. That middle brewery, fiscal, but middle fiscal. Yeah. Is that the, where the brewery is and the pizza place? Manoway. Oh, you're talking Chester about King. Chester King. Yeah. I've never been out there. Yeah. Well, it's like it, there's these places that can exist 20, 30 miles outside of town and people go there to kind of get away from, you know, the city. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but they're like super hopping places in the middle of freaking nowhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, even County, not County line is it? Uh, shoot. No, that barbecue place out there not county line oh anyways it's a it's a middle of nowhere but it's always been a hot thing like it's huge and people just will take a day <clears throat> trip just to go there and yeah uh eat barbecue it's mm. it's crazy well yeah i mean i think where we're kind of where what i'm kind of seeing us talking about is this sort of like this there's this creative spirit that kind of happens and then it's sort of captured you know by the by the mundane Hmm. and tries to make it predictable and at that point the creatives move away or out further 
because most creatives are not interested in the predictable. But at the same time, I think it leaves yeah, behind. precisely because predictable isn't creative. Mm. But I think too, it's like it's like there's that part too is that, that's really beautiful, and that the creatives leave behind something that other people can experience, that maybe draw that that it is creative for them, mm-hmm. and and it, it maybe inspires you know them to do something different or. Or like outside of their normal, like TGIF Fridays or something like that. You know, it's like, it's like, that's the ultimate predictable is like chilies, you know, <laughs> the ultimate predictable is chilies. <laughs> that was genius. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're driving, it's like, you're driving, you're like, you know, cross country, uh, you know, you go to your McDonald's, you go to your water, bottles, you go to your. <laughs> In the Starbucks year or whatever. In the year two thousand two, mm-hmm. I decided and proclaimed aloud to my group of friends that I would never eat at a Chili's ever again. Oh wow! <laughs> and I haven't. <laughs> wow. I probably not eaten at a Chili's in probably ten years, but I, I was a busboy at Chili's in mm. high school, and so when I walk into a Chili's, there's a certain smell whenever you clean off dishes into a trash can and it's all mixed together. Ugh. I smell that when I go through the door. Gross. Nobody else does. Right. But you I know can it's smell there. It. Yeah. yeah. And usually, like, I remember the one of the, some of the last times I ate at Chili's, like, the first three bites are awesome. I love it. Hmm. And then every bite after that, everything tastes the same. Mm-hmm. Whether you're eating, right. you know, well, chicken crispers. Predictable. Or, <laughs> exactly. Or a salad. All tastes the same. Hmm. I, I, for a couple of summers, I worked as a dishwasher at a summer camp. Oh yeah. We were called pit boys. <laughs> totally. Um, and so you've got, you know, 400 people eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner and the dishes will come into the window and you scrape the food off into this, you know, mm-hmm. huge trash, a 50 gallon trash can or yeah. whatever. And, uh, there was a thing we would do called the, pit boy challenge <laughs> totally <laughs> do you know what i'm gonna say <laughs> so you've got this 50 gallon trash can full you do it after breakfast because mm-hmm. there's generally a lot of liquids involved in breakfast <laughs> so the the food in the trash can it's more of a soup you know and it's opaque you can't see to the bottom yeah but it's disgusting uh-huh. and so you take a spoon and drop it into the trash can, let it sink to the bottom, and then a participant, <laughs> willing or unwilling, <laughs> I suppose, has to retrieve the spoon with their mouth. Holy sh... Are you serious? So there's... Yeah. You, you know what a keg stand is, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So you need helpers because you're going to be, you know, submersed up to your waist in this crap. <laughs> wow. That's a lot for I've seen. I I've seen people throw up. Oh yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, but then afterwards, I was like, "Yeah, Woo! oh totally." I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm still talking about it <laughs> 20 years later. But that's also fascinating too. It's like that—that that sort of ritual that is binding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that's so gross and so nasty. But but we went through that. Together. You went through that together, and it's wow. That's that's a whole nother conversation right there. But. Hmm. Yeah. Well, shoot, man. 
uh, yeah, we were not sure what we were going to talk about tonight. I'm not sure what we talked about. I don't know what we did either. <laughs> we went from kids to structure and creative and, hmm. uh, well, thank you guys for joining us. It's, uh, it's always a, an adventure, so. That it is. Yeah. I think next week we got a, we've got a, we're talking about finances and stuff. And we're going to have a guest. We're going to have a guest. Yeah. For the first time in a year. Uh-huh. It's going to be kind of fun. I think so. I think we're going to probably try to do that a little bit more often. So yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being here with us. Shoot job. Love you all. Yeah. Thanks for coming out to the shores. (laughs) Good night.